Welcome to the Daily Objective. So famously, Ayn Rand, when she was asked what are her three favorite theatrical plays, she said, Cyrano de Bergerac, Cyrano de Bergerac, Cyrano de Bergerac. So probably if you've been around Objective Circles, you've heard about the appreciation for the play and how many people said that they find it inspiring, an example of romantic uh, literature. So we have together today with us Lisa Van Damme, uh, founder of Van Damme Academy, also host of a parody show in Anwar Center UK channel. Uh, she also has the Reading With Me app, which if you've always wanted to start jumping into serious literature, but you didn't want, you, you didn't know where to start, it's definitely the place to start. So we're gonna, so you're gonna see that when Lisa talks about literature, it's inspiring and you will want to be part of this. Enough with introduction. So Lisa, you're here with us today because there's a new Cyrano movie. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, it's, it went to cinemas in 2021. It's featuring Peter Dinklage. You probably most people know him from Game of Thrones. So I think you went there and watched it with your students, I think, Thank of you. Van Damme Academy. So the point today is tell us what's your take on it. But also maybe discuss about Cyrano a bit more, why so many objectives like it, what are mm -hmm. its characteristics as romantic literature that one might find appealing. I so think. the floor is yours. Okay. So I also teach literature currently to seventh and eighth grade at Van Damme Academy. And Cyrano de Bergerac is a play I've been teaching every year for at least a decade, maybe as many as 20 years. I'm losing track now. Um, so it is a play that's very near and dear to my heart, um, so much so that it's one of the few plays that I've read and felt like I actually fell in love with the protagonist in reading it. I mean, felt like I was closing the cover and closing off a world that belonged to me. Um, and also a couple of years ago, I'm that that love has expanded beyond Cyrano de Bergerac to Rostand, the author in general and his work. And I even went on a sort of literary pilgrimage myself two years ago. I, I read a biography of him and learned that his home was still there in the Basque region of France and um, open to tourists. So I flew to France by myself and found a little place to stay nearby and spent three days exploring every corner of his home. So uh, Rostand is one of my great loves. Cyrano de Bergerac is one of my great loves. And I have to confess that from the outset before I start talking about the movie, because I did take my students um, every year. I get my students to fall in love with it, too. I took them to see the movie. And um, well, we had uh, about two hours of animated conversation afterward where they were expressing their displeasure with it so so, um, so your students had already read the play yes mm -hmm. and then there was a movie okay yeah we read the play a few months ago and we saw that the movie was coming out so we were kind of waiting on the edge of our seats so that we could go take a school field trip there and did just just last week and uh so kind of tried to go in neutral but did have the impression from the trailer that we were not going to be pleased with it. And that is how it turned out to be. But when I told them that I was going to come here and have this discussion, my students said to me, now, Miss Van Dam, just remember if somebody goes into this movie not having read the play, 
they might enjoy it and they might they might not feel the same indignation that you do um, because of your attachment to the play. So I do have to give that as a disclaimer from the outset that somebody just going cold into this movie might think it was all right. I mean, I still don't, I still think it has major weaknesses, uh, even apart from its comparison to the original. But um, but I do want to give that disclaimer before I start talking about what I hated about it. So just to give a very general overview to the audience, first of all, I haven't watched the movie. I've watched the 1950 classical Cyrano film. Yes. But from, from watching the trailer, it looks like it follows this trend where the characters become more diverse. Mm -hmm. So Christian, mm -hmm. for example, is a person of uh, color. I don't assume that this was in the, in the original. And mm -hmm. Cyrano, instead of having a big nose, yeah. is someone who is, uh, who is very, 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 very short. So, and also it's a musical, which I don't know how often Cyrano is transferred to a play, which is a musical. Was it something yeah. unique? So this was a stage play that they turned it into a musical for a, the Broadway stage. And then Joe Wright, the director, who I love for Pride and Prejudice, um, he turned the stage play into a movie. So I'm trying to not hold him completely accountable for the disaster of it because he was working with the stage play, though he should have gone to the original to get, get his real inspiration. Um, so, yeah, the diversity of casting. So. Yes, they changed it from instead of him having a, a you know large nose, instead he's a man of short stature. I was willing to accept that. I do see a problem in it, and the problem that I see in it goes to the heart of the I think the my basic complaint with this film. Um, I believe so. The film turned the movie the film turned the story into a story of somebody with an insecurity kind of crippled by an insecurity that undermined his ability to live a happy life now that's kind of a a cliche kind of a trope i don't think that's what the original was about at all in fact i think the choice of making him have an exceptionally large nose although this is also loosely based on a character who existed in reality apparently but but the idea, the symbolic idea that I think is that he is a man who is larger than life in every respect. He is a superhero. He's a, he's a giant. He's um, a person of epic proportions and epic idealism and total romanticism. So he's too great for this world of conventionality and compromise. And um, so the visual you know, symbol of the, the big nose is just indicating that yeah he's he's a man of exaggerated proportions so so it's a little funny you know that we've got now a person of short stature to play the man of exaggerated proportions but i think the thing that they i, th I still think you could pull that off but you have to be on the premise that that is the character that cyrano is not somebody who fails in love because he was too prideful and insecure um, but somebody who fails in love because he's too great for the world and the world doesn't have, I mean, can't offer him the values that he needs and deserves. Two comments on this. Let yeah. me pause you for two comments. So the first one is just to, so people understand what type of larger than life character we're talking about. And it's not a spoiler because it's the first scene. So Cyrano goes to a theater 
and mm -hmm. he he has beef with one with an actor. Yeah. We find out not only because he's a bad actor, but for a more serious reason. So he yeah. basically says, "You leave the stage, otherwise yeah. uh, we're gonna fight. And if anyone has a problem, come talk to me." So yeah. of course, no one has a no one dares to because they know he's an excellent sportsman. But yeah. then the owner of the theater shows up and says, "Hey, look, I'm losing business here." So Cyrano takes a bunch of money and throws it to him and says, "Look, no problem. Take that money." But very soon we realized that this was all the money he had. Yes. So a friend says him, uh, tells him, what a mad act to throw away all your money. But what a gesture, Cyrano what says. So this is the type yeah. of person he is. This is the type of larger character he is. But let me push you a bit on this idea that of the insecurity. Doesn't Cyrano even in the original have insecurity? Because the reason he doesn't go to talk to his crush is because he thinks I'm too ugly. She's not gonna lie to me. Yeah, so uh, I wanna comment on the first thing first and then I'll get to that. Um, also, I want to give a little plug that my discussion of this play is in the Read With Me app. Um, I did Cyrano de Bergerac, I read it myself, which was a great joy to, to be able to speak those words. And um, all my commentary is in there. And one of my last posts is, is Cyrano insecure? Um, one of my last pieces of commentary on it. So um, first, yes, that introduction of Cyrano, that, that appearance, which if you see it in the theaters, he's appearing from the back of a, a state, uh, the back of the audience um, for a, a staged play so what they'll often do is have him appear from the back of the audience of the real audience and it's such a dramatic moment so he appears he tells uh this lamentable actor that he's banned him from the stage the people get upset he challenges the entire audience to a duel there are so many lines of incredibly brilliant swagger like will all those who wish to die please raise your hands um so he's got this prowess as a swordsman. He's got this incredible swagger. He can challenge a whole room to a duel and nobody will dare fight him, even though they've got a whole crowd and he's one man. Um, yes, he, he, you know, says farewell paternal pension, gives him the whole, all of the money he has to, to close down the play without harming the theater. Um, and yeah, the line in the original play and the translation I use at school, it's the, the hooker translation. Um, he says, his friend who always wants him to look out for himself and compromise and be his friend Lebray, just, you know, do what you need to do to be successful. You're so wonderful. I want you to experience joy and pleasure in life. And he says to him, what a fool you are. And he says, no, but what a gesture. So that, that is, I mean, he's just this magnificent, heroic, larger than life character in the film. He, he, oh gosh, I, I don't, there's so many things I want to say about it. But first of all, he engages, somebody challenges him to a duel. He fights them. This is part of his other swagger is he's, he's a poet. He has this incredible facility with words. So he's, he's physically superhuman. He's mentally superhuman. He's poetic and romantic and, you know, able to express himself in the most romantic of language. And he fights a duel. He says, okay, while we fight, I'll compose a ballad, which is a very structured um, form of poetry. And he says, and on the final uh, verse, I'll thrust, thrust home. So he's, gonna he's going to time 
all the movements to the words he's saying in this highly structured poem. Um, so uh, in the movie, he fights a duel with this bizarrely cartoonish villain. And it's a his rap that he sort of sings as he's fighting him is about what it's like to, to you know, have the nurse be horrified by you when you're born. It's all stressing the kind of tr trauma and, insec and insecurity of being, you know, different from other people. So it just undermine, undercuts his character profoundly right from the start. Now, is he insecure? This is like my number one argument that I have with people. And usually what I ask people to try to get them to see it from my perspective is when you step away from this play and just look at him, do you look like up like this is an incredible um, superhuman great figure or do you feel any pity or like um, sympathy for him? That And there's, to me, what we're supposed to walk away with is total hero worship in every respect. Sadness that he is too great for the world and the world can't um, reward, you know, the way the world is, it, he won't be rewarded for his greatness, but just pure greatness. But so when, what I think is that it's not an insecurity with himself. I think when he has that, that duel and, um, he, there's a line early on where he says, know that I glory in this nose of mine. I don't think that's a front. I don't think he's just trying to protect. I think he actually does. I think he thinks by his own standards, he's a handsome man. So I think the insecurity is with the world. It's not insecurity in himself. It's insecurity that the world will reward him for his virtues because it won't. It's a fact that it won't. Um, and it's not just in the realm of love. The film makes this all about romance. It's in the realm of work. Moliere steals his um, lines. Yeah, it's, his play. Yeah. It's, it's in every respect. He loses out on material practical success because of his devotion, complete devotion to his ideals. And also someone who is insecure is hiding it. Mm -hmm. When someone makes fun of his nose, he says, oh, your nose is too large. Is this all you have? And he has something like 10 prettier uh, yeah. insults about his notes. But he's like, Absolutely. I can make fun of my nose. You can make fun of my nose. And that's why they have a, they have a fight. Let's see some yeah. first super chat. So thank you very much, Jonathan. Thank you very much, Regina. Uh, Robert says, and thank you for the super chat, Robert. Lisa, thank you and your class for taking one for the team. Yeah. I don't <laughs> care to see a Cyrano musical, nor do I want to see the characters, quote, reimagine. But mm -hmm. given Mr. Dinklage's talent, I'd been, uh, I'd been curious. Mm. Yeah, I'd like to say something about that. Um, so first of all, when I heard that this new movie was going to be made, a lot of people said to me, oh, but it's Peter Dinklage. He's going, he's such a phenomenal actor, so it, it has to be good. And I had never my only exposure to Peter Dinklage had been in the movie Elf. Um, it's like a comedic Christmas movie. So I just didn't know what anyone was talking about. Turns out it was Game of Thrones. I didn't realize it was like this universal thing that everybody knows he's a great actor, but I'd never seen an episode of Game of Thrones. So I just had no idea what they were referring to. Now, he is a great actor. And much of the acting in the movie, I think, is great. 
And I almost wish it, it wasn't. I think it's worse that it's great acting. And I think that this is something I'm starting to observe in films more and more is that they're substituting acting for script. So it's mm. acting instead of plot. It's emoting instead of content. And there are so many great actors out there who are exceptionally effective at that. They can say anything and they do it with a, with a, a dramatic, you know, allure that sucks you in, but, but, what I call it smoke and mirrors. You don't, you, you are, um, it's almost like you're drawn in emotionally and your brain is kind of blanked out as you are because you're just focused on the acting itself. Um, so I think that's a lot of what was going on here is that there was some very good acting, but it wasn't acting that's bringing out this sublime theme in the original work. It was acting per se. Um, and that's that's starting to bother me more and more in films. I don't, I don't want to hear about great acting. I want to hear about a great plot, well realized by the actors. And a, an obvious example that we discussed in a previous episode, the viewers will recognize is the film Don't Look Up. So Leonardo mm -hmm. DiCaprio does some great acting because great he's acting. one of the greatest actors of our generation, but the film is unwatchable. And in a way, he saves it from being a B-movie or a caricature mm -hmm. of a B-movie as, as it should be. And as you said, in a way, you wish the acting was, uh, was yeah. not great. Okay. But uh, I can I give a contrast to Sorry? that? I want to give a contrast to that. One of my personal favorite movies is Gran Torino um, with Clint Eastwood. And I hear it was made with, uh, I think a lot of the people in it weren't even professional actors and it's kind of uh, low budget production. So a lot of people I know who are film buffs don't love that movie in part because they're evaluating in terms of those film characteristics, you know, cinematography or acting or, um, but, I, but as a plot driven movie, it is just genius. Um, so I'd give me plot over acting any day. So, Tell us then a bit more uh, about the movie because uh, I'm always tempted to discuss it and not itself mm -hmm. rather than the movie. Yeah. So I keep interrupting you when you want to evaluate the movie. So yeah. back to you. Okay. So I, I, in preparation for this, I sat with my students yesterday. We'd already talked about it for hours, but I said, all right, give me, give me your top 10 complaints about the movie. So I've got a list here. I don't know how many we'll get through because we don't have a lot of time, but um, so the first and most important is what I said that to me, this is, the ultimate play of romanticism. <clears throat> I'm planning to give a talk this summer at uh, the at Ocon called Hugo, Rostand, Arenani, and How to Be a Romantic, um, because Hugo and, and Rostand in, in are just, you know, two of the ultimate romantics. So as I said, this play is unique in presenting this incredible superhuman character and I could tell from the trailer that they were going to turn it into a romantic trope and they were going to turn it into a kind of fatal flaw story that he is undermined by his insecurity. And that's the focus of it. Um, so you remember the scene of his death, an incredibly moving scene in the original in the Jose Ferrer version. And um, one of the, elements of it is that he says he's he's dying and he says not here not lying down 
and he stands up and he's fighting his ancient enemies. Um, and uh, in the movie version, he goes in, he goes to see Roxanne. They have the scene of him giving her his gazette and, and then he falls on the ground and he's dying. And I just, I'm watching this going, oh my God, is he going to die on the ground? Is he, are they just going to have him flat on his back? And he's never, and that's indeed what happens. And not only that, there's this very, I thought, incredibly awkward scene where he's lying on the ground, kind of twitching in death. And then she starts singing a love song over the top of him. It was very bizarre, um, but it just killed, made it kind of a beauty and the beast story, kind of, a, um, you know, fatal flaw confession of your fault in the the last line in the original it depends which translation you read but in the original french he says i you know i go to heaven with one thing unspotted from the world and that is my panache is the the french version sometimes that's what they use in the english version or in the hooker version he says my white plume and his white plume means his perfect integrity he goes he goes to heaven with his integrity entirely intact. In this scene, she kisses him. She says, I loved you all the time. And it, it, it was always you I loved. And he says, and I loved my pride. And he dies. And it's like, that was his weakness, is that he was too focused on his own pride and gave up everything. So it just, the whole spirit of the play is dead in that. So I have to ask you here, though. I have yeah. to ask you, so mm -hmm. is this that the director didn't get it mm. or is it that they got it? I'm not going to say they wanted to, mm. you know, they don't like Eros, but they said, okay, no one is going to understand this. Let's mm. put it down to the level that the average consumer of my work is going to get something from it. So which of the two you think it was? I don't know, um, but I don't know if it matters. I think that the, the same truth is in either version that there's just culturally, we're just incredibly superficial in our entertainment. So culturally, we just want the familiar, we want it to be pretty and well acted, but there's no demand or capability, either it's no demand or no capability of creating something that's actually intellectually stimulating, unique, um, new, creative, there's just so little of that out there. Everything does feel very familiar and conventional and um, like more like a trope than, than something new. So somebody didn't understand the spirit of it. I know that. I mean, it. I guess the problem has to be rooted in the play, the stage play, um, because if this is just a cinematic production of the stage play, well, then the stage play got it all wrong. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so go complaint number two. Complaint number two. Um, so the other thing, when before we went to see the movie, I asked my students, what will disappoint you if if it doesn't include this scene or this element or you know, this this quality of the play, what will disappoint you? And one of them said, Well, it has to be poetic. If it's not poetic, it's not Cyrano. I mean, the whole point is he's supplying Christian with the ultimate beautiful words. He himself is a poet who can compose poetry while fighting a duel. Um, it's written in this incredibly romantic language and I'm reading in an English translation. God, I wish I could read the original French. I'm sure it's magically superior. Um, apparently Rostand himself 
was more comfortable writing in verse than he was writing prose and would even, you know, uh, spontaneously speak in verse sometimes um, when uh, called upon to do so. So um, the language is such an important part of it. And so we were sitting in the theater and I was joking that, you know, if, if it turns out to be really terrible, I'm going to appear from the back of the movie theater and, you know, do the Cyrano thing, ban it from the stage. And they were laughing and they said, what's the first line? And I said, wretch, have I not forbade you these three weeks? And um, so we had just laughed about that before the movie started. And then the movie starts. They do have this scene. He does appear from the back of the theater and he says, what are you doing here? And I could just feel everybody. It was just my class in the audience because we went to an 11 o'clock a.m. showing and I could just feel them all sink. <laughs> I'm all like, so okay, how forget old are poetry. the kids in your class? What's that? How old are how they? Old are the... 13, 14, 13, 14. No, that's yeah. Impressive. That's impressive. Oh, that's the least of it. I should get into more stories of the things that they said. Um, okay, so one of the things that was kind of an awkward uh, go to your go to a movie with your eighth grade teacher aspect of it is that everything was hypersexualized. That's another thing. Like it, it's another kind of cheap way to capture romance, but we don't know we don't know how to present romance in any meaningful sense. So we'll just make it sexy. That's it. so. Um, in just for example, in the first uh, after Roxanne starts receiving the letters from Christian originally by Cyrano. Um, there's this prolonged scene of her singing and basically rubbing the letters on her half naked body and kind of writhing on the bed and stuff. So that was one of one of their complaints. They have the sophistication to say, well, that was kind of cheap. That is not the romance that we remember from the play. And then there's this other scene. This this led this is an aside, but it was the most comedic moment of my conversation with them. Um, there's a scene when he meets Roxanne at Ragano's uh, shop. And um, in, in the movie, he, Ragano's composing poetry. He is a poet in the original. Here he has no character other than that. Um, he's composing poetry and he's writing a poem that involves astronomical um, metaphors. And Cyrano says to him, no, write about what you know. Make it about baking because that's what you know. And he says, ah, yes, heat, rising bread. So like there's sexual connotations and everything he says. And then there's this uh, musical number where the people in the bakery are shirt, the men are shirtless and they're all like kneading dough and like caressing each other's arms as they're kneading dough. And it's just we all found it very weird. Um, and so we come back later, we're talking about that scene and my 14 year old students start saying, yeah, they need a workplace training seminar over there about red flags to look for. If your coworker is not wearing a shirt, if they start caressing it and they said, yeah, they need an HR department because Ragana was too busy composing poetry in the corner. So yeah, they, 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 they had a lot of, uh, Let me ask really a question here, because mm -hmm. as I, I was thinking about it, so do you think, though, that, uh, so you said there's this element that there's almost something sexual with the letters. Yeah. Let me take it, even if it's not sexual. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't we say today that 
a woman would find all these letters a bit cheesy. So mm. particularly if it's a man of action, the idea is the man of action doesn't talk too much. So cheesiness uh, in a good way is like a spice. You put a bit in the food. You make it mm. too much, the food becomes unedible. So was this like a 19th century thing, this hyper real lyrical, oh, you know, you're the sun and all that stuff. And today it would be weird or, or, or is, there something, is there something universal there? <laughs> um, if it's a 19th century thing, I want to live in the 19th century. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to bring the 19th century back um, in that respect. I think it's funny because I don't think my students find it cheesy, but I think that's because there's no cynicism in my classrooms. I mean, it, it's just, I think they experience it outside of the school walls, so it's hard to keep it at bay. But I think a world in which you can just uninhibitedly worship and beauty, um, there's no, then, then it's not cheesy. I mean, it could be cheesy, but if it's, but the words of Cyrano, there's nothing cheesy in any of them. So I, I know what you're talking about, but I feel like it's almost like a collective repression um, in, in our culture. Uh, that they won't allow themselves to enjoy beauty in this way because we've just learned that that's something to be laughed at. It's what I used to call the Simpsons culture. Um, I was never a fan of the Simpsons, even though I know, or South Park, even though I, I can comprehend their brilliance, but it just set this tone of, of to be intellectual is to laugh at things, not to be intellectual is to revere, worship, embrace things. Um, so yeah, I don't think, I think uh, it, it's very possible to have that be effective and beautiful. All right, so before we go to the, uh, you have to pick the two top two things that you didn't I like because we don't have time to go to all the 10 points of the list. But also to end on a positive note, uh, something mm -hmm. that you liked, and also I'm gonna ask you, what is the best way for someone to have their first contact with Cyrano, which play, mm. which translation? But before mm -hmm. that, let me go to some more super chats. So okay. Tom says he loves the discussion. Thank you very much, Tom. Love this discussion about the great work of art. Thank you and thank you for your contribution. Thank you for your contribution, Roland. Roland says he's really looking forward to hearing Lisa at Ocon. So mm -hmm. Lisa, what other points from the film you want to bring to our attention? Okay, let's see. Um... <sighs> Well, <laughs> this, there's one I can give that's just very short because I, when I asked them for their top 10 complaints about it, one of the students said the music. And that was, that was the end of the, <laughs> I mean, the music I thought was very poor. I mean, there, I just recently rewatched La La Land and that seemed like a musical masterpiece in comparison. The music in, in this version of Cyrano, I compared to, what my seven-year-old daughter does when she's looking out the window on our drive home from school. She'll just kind of musically sing the things she sees with no rhyme and no meter to it. That's basically what the, what the movie felt like. Um, I'm so tempted to start a discussion on La La Land because it's one of my favorite films, but we're going to leave it for another point. Okay, well, I will sign up to have that discussion with you anytime you want because it's fresh in my mind and... One of it's a film I love so much that it was almost hard for me to watch it again because it's like I just I love it too much. It's like I have to keep it on the shelf and <laughs> not experience it. Um, 
so the last thing I'll say is, um, uh, there's, I take offense at stealing the heart of a story and then doing a really poor job at it. I, I went a few years ago to see To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway and on its own terms, um, the, the play was, I can acknowledge the play was good. I think it was uh, very um, politically motivated. I think the themes were, were offensive, pol offensively political um, and not true to the original spirit of, of the novel. And they did their best to undercut the hero Atticus um, and glorify lesser characters. But anyway, the, the frustration was, well, you called this to kill a mockingbird. You're stealing the fame of it. You're stealing its name. You're stealing some ele important elements of its plot and you haven't honored the spirit of it at all. And that's my feeling about this Cyrano also. Right, so, and by the spirit, I assume you mean the heroic, I assume you mean the Romantic larger than life as you, yeah, as you, yeah. yeah. Yes. And then the question becomes then, why do they make a film about this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's it's either that it's the easy thing to do, like okay, what are famous plays, or even mm -hmm. worse, the director recognizes the brilliance and is yeah. like, I can make something of it which it's gonna give me some internal satisfaction. Well, I always love this. Now I'm gonna bring it to screen. Also, I'm gonna make meals and I'm gonna pander to the sensitivities of the audience today. So, mm -hmm. okay, so looks like you wouldn't recommend as a starting point for Cyrano, no. uh, the 2021 film. So what would be the best way for someone to approach it? Obviously, what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to go and uh, to read with me and follow that. So you also recommend a particular translation there. Yeah. Uh, but if someone has the opportunity, would you recommend that they start with going to the theater and, watch mm -hmm. and seeing it or watching the 1950 film? or any of the other adaptations, or go to the book, I assume, for a lack so of a better... My, my self-serving recommendation will be to start with the read with, read with me, but it's because I do believe I understand the intention of the play, and I do believe I honor the true spirit of it. So, and I know it like the back of my hand at this point. So I'm able to not just hand you a play and say, read this. And it is meant to be seen on a stage, not to be read. It can be read and relished as I have so many times. But um, I think just even having me read it aloud and give intonation to it, I'm no actor, I don't pretend to be, but I think I still give life to the words. Um, and then to have me as a guide, to point out what's important and to make integrations and to show um, how things fit together and to talk about things like the insecurity issue. I think that helps to elevate your experience and appreciation of it. And then in terms of cinematic versions, um, I, I've heard people say that the Derek Jacoby version, which is just a film of a stage, so it doesn't have any production values. It's just a film of him acting on stage. I know Leonard Peikoff really loves that one. I actually haven't seen that version myself. Of the other available ones, the Jose Ferrer version that you watched is my favorite uh, because I think he he is how I imagine the character to be. He has the swagger. He has the joy. He has the um, 
kind of superiority and prowess. And I, and I love that. Um, and also it's in the public domain since some mm-hmm. years ago, so people can find it in various versions in, Great. Perfect. in YouTube as well. Yeah. Yeah. So do okay. I, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So start with uh, read with me. So for people who don't know, read with me is an app. If I remember well, you don't even, it doesn't require any particular type of subscription. You download the ad. That's right. And now you can get it on Spotify or um, Apple Podcasts. I think there's all kinds of platforms that it's available on now, um, or you can download the app. And the way it works is we've got two options. So the one option is you literally read with Lisa. So Lisa is reading and you, you can follow or you can listen it as an audiobook. If yeah. she has the rights for the book. So, for example, uh, White Knight was the book I and you were actually reading it. Yeah. Or if you don't want to do this or if Lisa hasn't got the rights for the text, mm-hmm. you listen to the commentary. So yeah. you can read it yourself or listen to Lisa reading it. And then there's a separate, let's say, section in the podcast or the audiobook, how, depending how you want to see it where there's the commentary and I think you also have a Facebook group. I'm not in Facebook, but I've heard there's a yeah. Facebook group where you, so there's a backlog with past books you've done, yeah. but also you do current, you currently read books. So I suggest the best way to follow this is to uh, register. Uh, how do I get these emails? Is it because I'm in read with me? If you signed up for the app, then you get on, then you'll be on the mailing list. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So there's a mailing list with uh, current projects and how they how they work. Also, yeah. Lisa, Lisa is going to be with us in the UK next week. Uh, yes. Is it Tuesday that the event with Joanna? Tuesday evening, I have an event with Joanna on lessons for schools from the pandemic. Um, yeah. And Thursday, I'm giving a tour of Keats House which will include an introduction to some of his poetry and his life and make the experience of being in the house much more magical. Right. So Joanna is Joanna Williams. Uh, most of the uh, people who follow the show, they, they've probably seen her. And mm-hmm. so one last thing. So many people have, I didn't know who Lisa was. I just happened to watch a knock on talk where you talk about uh, poetry. Mm-hmm. So even if I didn't know the points you were talking about, but the way you talk about art is you you get so much into it that the audience also gets into it. So I will be honest and say I don't know any of the poems of this poet that you're referring, but I'm looking forward to coming to this tour because even if you don't know the poem, it's it's a nice experiencing Lisa talking about these things. So thank you very much, Lisa. We're going to see you next week in London. So Upcoming today, 10 p.m. UK time, we've got Cutting Edge with Lee Pearson. Special guest, doesn't get more special than that, Harry Binswanger. And the topic is affordances and perceptual inerrancy. Okay, sorry. There are two of the four words in the title. (laughs) I don't even know what they mean. So if you want to find out more, follow follow Cutting Edge with Lee. Lisa, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Anything else you want to tell people about any things that you're doing these days or that they should follow? Uh, just if you, if you want to keep up to date on what I'm doing, sign up for the Read With Me app. You can get on the news the, my uh, newsletter and I have lots to say about the projects I'm working on now. Excellent. Thank you, Lisa, and see you next week in London. Thanks, okay. everyone. Thank Talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye.